when is it going to go away? That's another pillow. How long is this going to last? That's another pillow. And I can't stand that. That's another pillow. And, and this isn't happening to other people. Why me? That's another pillow. And all of that is additional to the root difficulty. You know, and it's understanding those other pillows, you have a choice about those. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the show, we have Dave Potter. Dave is a retired psychotherapist, and he specializes in anxiety, stress, and trauma. He created his side project, Palouse Mindfulness, when he was a working therapist as a way to share a particular meditation practice that had changed his life, mindfulness-based stress reduction. If you've not heard of mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, it's an incredible meditation therapy originally designed for stress management. And it's now used for treating illnesses, including depression, anxiety, chronic pain, cancer, diabetes, and immune disorders. Dave Potter had been interested in meditation since the 70s, and he received his training as an MBSR instructor when he was a therapist through the University of Massachusetts Medical School, which was actually where John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of MBSR, founded the Center of Mindfulness and began MBSR. MBSR is a life-changing course for so many people, but if done in person, like all courses, it can be really expensive. Dave wanted to create a free version of this life-changing course to bring the lessons to everyone who needs it. He lent on his previous experience in software and created, single-handedly, the Palouse Mindfulness website. The result is a true labor of love. He has personally recorded meditation sessions, curated online teaching content, and painstakingly written up exercises and built the website all for free so people who need it most can access the benefits of MBSR through a free self-paced course and it has already helped thousands of people. Dave is an incredible person, and I was moved by this conversation. We talk about why people procrastinate with meditation, the benefits of starting something on the side, dealing with difficult situations, and why meditation is as important as sleep. I hope you enjoy. So Out of Hours, the name, is kind of meant to mean both projects that you do outside of your main work, so literally out of hours. And then it's also the fact that we are running out of hours and we need to interrupt that sense of well, we're going to be here forever and one day I'll do this thing and not today, but one day I'll, I'll write that book or one day I'll start that new hobby or whatever. That's a big part of sort of why I wanted to set this thing up because I wanted more people mm -hmm. to do these things that kind of cross their mind, you know, because one day we will run out of hours and it's something that people don't like to think about. Yeah. So I was just curious, like, whether you had any thoughts, any advice for how to live as if you're running out of hours without being distracted by the kind of existential angst that comes from, from dwelling on that too much. 
Well, that's the trick, isn't it? You know, it's, <laughs> it's to be to be aware enough so that you can you can have all your resources available to you and respond appropriately, but not get caught up in in having to achieve what you want to achieve like right now. I mean, there's you can take the two extremes. And one extreme is doesn't matter, nothing's going to ever get ever happen, or I don't have to worry about anything, so I won't work very hard. And at the one extreme, it's like I want to be a doctor, but I don't have to worry about it too much. And you never worry about applying to medical school. So you'll never be a doctor. And the other extreme is, is I got to be a doctor. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to work hard and I got to study and I got to go to school and I got to work and I got to earn money and I got to do this and blah, 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 blah. And you're not there, you know? And so it's very unpleasant and it's very uncomfortable. And you're not effective because you're spending most of your time reacting to what the fear of not achieving what you want to achieve. Um, and so the trick is to find that place that's somewhere in the middle where you can be uh, aware of what your goal is. You want to go to, you want to be a doctor? Well, there's medical school. Uh, there's uh, arranging how you're going to finance yourself your way through that. And so all these things that have to be in line. Your My intention can be very strong. This is what I want to do. But I'm not so caught up in it that I, I can't enjoy where I am at, at the moment. You do it what you can. So what I sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, the way I refer to this is that one extreme is low intention, meaning you don't have much discipline about getting anywhere, low attachment, you don't care and you don't put any effort in it. And the other one where you're just frantic, 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 it's high intention, high attachment, which means you care so much that every moment is like danger, you know, because you might lose the opportunity or whatever. And the, and the place in the middle is one of high intention. You still have high goals. I want to be a doctor. Or I want to have, run a successful business or I want to achieve something and say, that's my goal. But I'm not so caught up in it that I can't respond effectively in, in the moment. That If it happens, that's wonderful. And I've worked hard to get there. If it doesn't happen, there's a change of plans uh, that's, that's effective. So... Uh, I, I would say for your listeners who think about how to how to have that attitude towards starting something, it's important to have a goal, but not to get so caught up in that goal when things change, when the environment change or things don't happen the way you expected them to. Take a step back and keeping your goal in mind, but not getting rattled about things changing because things always change. That was Eisenhower. He was a general in the army before he was president. He says, well, I have to tell you that, that planning is indispensable. You have to plan. He says, but plans are worthless. He says, the value is in the planning. The value is in scoping out what needs to be done. The value is anticipating what might happen. But you, and you may have an idea, this is how it's going to happen. Probably isn't how it's going to happen. But the fact that you've invested some thought and energy in, in what what you can do in certain circumstances is going to benefit you no matter what the landscape. Um, and so you can do that without panicking. One thing that I think is quite common to people with side projects, and you'll know this, I'm sure, from Palu, it's, it's very easy to feel very personally attached to it because it's something that's important mm -hmm. to you. So I'm curious, with your kind of Palu's meditation hat on, how you've applied those principles of detachment to personal projects. And if there's any kind of tips you have for people who uh, who, who kind of hear what you're saying and they say, yeah, okay, I, I want to be kind of high intention or low attachment, but I don't know how to do it. What, what advice would you give them? Yeah, 
Well, it's hard to know how to do that, you know. So, so what this practice is about is is how to how to have how to create space. So it's not not all activity, 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 thinking, 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 planning, 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 and there's no space to really reflect on what's actually happening. And so, what a mindfulness practice brings in is the space, and the space can't happen with some without some level of non-attachment. Uh, but the truth is, it's not just a breath, but it's kind of a breath in a bigger sense. So all the mental energy that's been going into something, and all the emotional wanting things to happen a certain way, and all the activity of doing things, you need at least some some spaces within that so things can kind of uh, calibrate. You know, a meditation teacher of mine used to say that meditation is when you're meditating, you're metabolizing. You've got mental activity, you've got emotional wants and needs, you've got physical sensations coming in. Normally we're 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 doing one or the other, and there's no time for them to kind of calibrate with each other. So what's going on mentally, what's going on emotionally, what's going on in terms of your senses coming in. If you can create a space, and that's one thing that I mean, we're human beings don't uh, we wouldn't survive if we didn't have sleep. Everybody needs sleep. Uh, sleep is a time when things can kind of calibrate a little bit. Meditation is is that sort of on steroids. It's a time where Mentally, emotionally, physically, things will percolate. You know, random thoughts will come in. What will feel like random thoughts? Random feelings will come in. Will feel like random, but they're not really random. They're related to what it is you're interested in and what you're concerned about. But your your attitude towards them is less of oh, I've got to do something about this right now, and more of a letting go and saying, this is what's going on mentally. This is what's going on emotionally. This is what's going on physically. And you get out of the way and for enough time for them to kind of uh, metabolize means use the energy that's there. And if you don't allow space for that, uh, you can kind of get out of sync. So those times looks like nothing is happening because you're not doing stuff. You may not be planning anything, but just the, what seems like random thoughts and random emotions, really not random, would be like if you're doing a, a puzzle and you picked up a piece and said, I've got to put this this piece in, right, this is the one I've got to do, and i got to do it now. Sometimes you find where it goes, but most of the time, you don't. Meditation allows for that recalibrating to go on what looks like nothing is happening. One thing I'm curious about is this kind of tension between when we need to meditate most and when we least like meditating so like I read somewhere I can't remember what it was I don't know if it was like a tweet or from a book or something but it said something like when you're busy you should meditate once a day and when you're really busy you should meditate twice a day <laughs> and it's kind of like yeah. that thing of like you know it's the last thing you want to do when you're really busy to sit right. down especially with with your meditations they're like half an hour and every time you do them, they're amazing. And you're like, thank God I've done them. But the sitting down is always the hardest thing. And I just find that tension really fascinating because why is it that we resist something that we need so much? I'm really glad you brought that up. How you develop a, and maintain a meditation practice, advice or tips. And there is one that I think can be helpful. And that is don't force yourself. Don't obligate yourself to sit for the whole period of time you think you're supposed to be sitting. Like if you'd like to be sitting for half an hour and half an hour is a lot of time and you've got a lot of things to do. And that's and to, to think I'm going to spend half an hour doing something that's not accomplishing anything. That's how your mind thinks of it. 
it's not actually accurate because something does happen in the meditative process. It's just not apparent. But if you could say, well, I am going to commit to five minutes. That much I'll do. And you can do five minutes. That's not a lot. And if at the end of five minutes, I want to stop, it's okay for me to stop. That's going to, that's going to be five minutes that I didn't have before. And really make it okay to stop after five minutes. So you sit down and the first four and a half minutes are, I don't want to do this. I've got all kinds of things to do. And I'm going to stop at five minutes. I'm going to stop five minutes. I'm stopping. I'm going to be done. Sometimes you'll hit five minutes. You'll still have that frame of mind and you'll have had five minutes, which is not wasted time because five minutes is more than zero. More often than not, after a few minutes, things will settle down enough so you go, well, I can go for another minute, I guess. I guess that would be okay. And all that franticness that was in the beginning about I got all this stuff to do and I don't have time to do this. And there will come a time where during the period of time you're meditating, there's there's a moment of ah, settling in. And then all that stuff that was going on that was frantic and energy that's not really very productive. Those needs and wants are still there, but now there's space. And there's space for you to, to rest a little bit so you can actually be more productive. Because we all know that we're more productive after a good night's sleep than we are when we're really tired. And from the way you described it, Georgia, it sounds like where the, the difficulty is is in the very beginning. It's, I don't know where we're started. It's hard to start. I don't want to, that's too much of a commitment. Uh, the hardest time for me is when I haven't really started anything yet. A hundred things on my desk and, and any one of them I could spend hours on. And I don't know which one yeah. to start. And, and that moment I want to procrastinate, not do any of them because it's just too much, right? But once I reach and take one of them and put it in front of myself and start on it, after a few minutes, I'm not thinking about the other 99 things. I'm just on that one. And meditation is similar. It isn't that doing the work is hard. It's procrastinating that's hard. You kind of build that pathway uh, in, your, in your nervous system. Yeah, I've been meditating virtually without missing a day in 30 years. But there are still times when I sit down, it's my time in the morning to do that. And I think, I got too much to do today. This should be a day I don't do the meditation. But I know from having done it for as long as I have, and when I sit down, by the time it's over, I say, oh, that was just right. One place in which being on autopilot is quite useful is setting up these like routines and habits that, are, that create space for disruption of that autopilot life. You've kind of got into this like rhythm with your own practice that you know you're going to do it every day and you, you can't really argue with it. It's more energy to sort of go, oh, I'm not going to do this because you have to cognitively think about it. Yeah, it's, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, I mean, most people brush their teeth every day at least once. You know, not, not everybody, but most do. And you don't stop and think, this is a day I'm not going to brush my teeth because I don't have time. Just what you do. And you know it's good for you. You know it's healthy, um, even though you, you may be busy. So you may do it fast, you know, <laughs> and get in and out to do it, but you, you still do it. So so automatic behavior is, is, uh, isn't categorically a bad thing. It's just that you, want that you don't want that to be the only way you can operate. In terms of Palouse, I couldn't remember whether you were still a psychotherapist when you decided to set it up or you'd finished your main practice and this was a 
because I because in my brain it was a side project and then I thought actually I don't know if it was like I don't know if you, maybe you'd kind of finish that chapter yeah uh, it, the my introduction to MBSR was that what I teach through foolish mindfulness I had while I was in doing psychotherapy and that was a, a really great adjunct to what I was doing it, it complemented my work in therapy um, the creation of the site as something that would be free and available to people who weren't in the in-person classes I was teaching, uh, that was more probably more in line with like what you call a side project. So this is not it's not the in-person classes I'm teaching. It's not my clinical practice. It's something something else. As I knew at the time, it was a side project. It wasn't something that it wasn't I wasn't ready to do it full time at that point. Because for me, the side project became a main project when paradoxically when I retired. That time while it was a side project. There was a great benefit in knowing that it didn't have to pay the bills. I didn't have to devote my attention to it 100%, but I could know that that's the direction I want to go. So I still am working and I'm still making an income doing one thing, but I can feel my passion going towards something else. Sort of like it's an infant now. It's not ready enough to really carry the full weight of my, of my, of my time and, and my interest. Mm. Um, but in terms of my emotional energy was more there than it was my clinical work. And my, but my clinical work supported doing that. And sort of when it got its legs, then I could drop the clinical work and do that full time. And for me, it was retirement to give me time. But other transitions that were similar in my life were, for instance, when I went into clinical work, uh, well, think about private practice. I worked for an agency for two years before I went into private practice. Right. But my boss was great. She, when I was doing agency work, she knew I wanted to do private practice, and eventually she was going to lose me. Uh, and and after a year, I said, no, I'm thinking that now might be the time to go into private practice. She said, well, don't do it yet. She says, keep working at the agency, start your own practice, and when you need hours for your practice, then you can just do less here at the agency. And so I had another year, which is wonderful. And I could just gradually build up the, my private practice. But because of the freedom that my boss gave me, and it's something that people need to give themselves as well, I could let, well, I can let it grow until it was strong enough. Because I would, if I were to stop and said to my boss, Kathy, I said, this is it. I need to stop. I'm going to my private practice now. And she would have said, okay. She wouldn't have had a choice because and, and nobody is forced to stay in a job. But I would have had a, a year of scrambling to make it wouldn't been I wouldn't have earned enough. It wouldn't have been enough. It took two years before my private practice got up to the level of income I had when I was doing agency work. You keep the passion for what you want to go to, but don't let that keep you from doing what you need to do to pay the bills in the meantime. Uh, so when somebody says, Oh, you're doing great stuff, I want to do that, I'm gonna quit and start doing that. I said, Don't quit. Know what, what direction you want to go. Let what you're doing now support your work in doing that and make sure you carve out enough, enough time and energy to do what you want to be doing. Let that grow until it's it has enough um, momentum and enough um, uh, legs so it can go on its own. And then the time will be right for you to quit. So don't, don't do it when you first have the idea, but keep the passion without the commitment that that's going to pay the bills. Mm. Do you think it impacted your quality of work in both of those scenarios? I, my personal view is that's a bit of a kind of myth. 
But there's kind of two types of people with side projects. People who are like, yeah, I really want to turn this into my full-time thing. And then other people are like, mm-hmm. I just really enjoy doing this as like a passion that, mm-hmm. you know, or it's a thing I can't get in my main work, but I don't want it to be my full-time job. But I feel like for both of those parties or both those groups of people, that advice is important, which is like, you know, they, they can kind of complement each other. But as I say, I think there is sometimes a myth, which is, you know, I don't know that your your other work suffers. Did you did you find that the case or? I can't. I've had lots of transitions in my life, and I can't think of somewhere I so desperately wanted to get out that I hated the time that I was I was in the, in the one before. But usually it wasn't that way. It was usually there was some complementariness going on. You know, for instance, when I was doing clinical practice or going from agency to, to private practice. Uh, that was the kind of work I was going to be doing on my own. It just I was doing it for somebody else at that point. And what I was doing in starting my private practice, that really benefited the work that I was doing with the agency. Um, when I was doing in-person classes before I had the website, and I was working on the website, which really didn't, really wasn't at the point where it was really useful to people at that point, the things I was doing on the website complemented my in-person work. And things I was doing in person complemented what I was doing on the website, even though they weren't, they really weren't identical. So ideally you'd have that. And even if it isn't, it isn't structurally that way, think of ways that what you're going toward can, can enhance that your work that you have to do right then. And the work you have to do right then, ways in which it can enhance the work that you want to do later. Because you, if you look for it, you'll find those, uh, those avenues that might benefit both. One thing that I think is quite interesting that comes up quite a lot with side projects is this almost like um, some people call it like a either a scarcity or an abundance mindset. With Palouse, like the fact that it was free, combined with the fact you were earning your income from, um, you know, your private practice, do you think that gave you a sort of freedom in, in, in producing it that you just wouldn't have had if you were kind of all in on, on Palouse without the income that you needed? Uh, yeah, for sure. And and I, I was in kind of a special place in that this transition from uh, clinical private practice to, to doing a plus mindfulness full time, I was going into retirement. I didn't need to be generate income. I had the, the luxury of, of being able to do it without generating generate income. But it also meant that I had to do things a different way than if I was trying to generate income from it, which I, I think in the in the and the long run benefited it because it allowed for me to, to develop a, a scale of operation that was really very scalable because I knew it was going to be just me doing it. I didn't couldn't afford to hire a staff to help me do this. I didn't have a budget to make it being bigger than just putting stuff up on the website. So I was forced to design it in a way that I didn't need to be involved in monitoring every step along the way that a student was taking the course. And so that meant that I could have one person doing the course at once, or I could have a thousand people doing it once, and it didn't matter. It didn't change what I did really. It just and the materials out there available, and that was dictated because it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a profit motivated business. I didn't need more. I didn't need to have the profit to 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 build bigger. Uh, I had to do it in a shoestring, and then at some point there was a limit. I could see that that I would need some income to keep it going because of some ongoing maintenance costs and some other things we're doing with the website. Put a page up on the website says, if you'd like to contribute, if it's been useful to you here, you can make a contribution and donations and 
And thankfully that's been enough to keep things going. So I'm not having to, so it, it winds up being, um, actually it's a little bit profitable now in terms of the balance sheet. So I have enough for the, for the, for, for going on for some other projects. Um, and it's not a financial drain. So it's not, I'm not spending money to keep it going. It's, it's running itself. In some ways, the, the necessity that had to be generated income from donations dictated the way it operated. That makes sense. And I think it's a, it's a good question for people to ask themselves when they start a project, which is, you know, do I want to, do I want this to be a business, number one? Do I want this to be um, a sort of self-sustaining nonprofit or do I want, am I happy to just absorb the costs and, and kind of, and pay for it? Because I think that is something that people do often, if you do start out thinking, oh, I don't really want this to be, or I'm happy for it not to be a business. You do sometimes get to that point, I think, where you're like, wow, this is actually now costing me something to run it. And I want it to exist, yeah. but I'd also quite like it to, you know, be self-sustaining as opposed to right. my contribution. When you launched the donations page, were you nervous? Because I guess you'd set the premise of it being totally free. And obviously it still was free. Um, but did it feel worrying or were you nervous at all about publishing that? Or, or did it feel relatively intuitive because of the community you'd built? Uh, nervous because people might look at it and say, well, he's just doing it for the donations. I mean, having seen the page, I think it's very clear it's not that. But just because there, would, there was now a financial element and just sometimes that can feel uncomfortable. There was a little bit of that. You know, I was, I, in fact, I was so worried about it in the beginning that I almost, I didn't do it this way because it was, it was too restrictive. I, I was going to write in a, a commitment that anything over $500 at the end of the year, I would donate myself if I wasn't using it, you know, because yeah. I didn't want people to be thinking that this is my, my way of, of generating because I wasn't at that point, I wasn't a nonprofit, meaning that it was, any income that came, I could legitimately take it for myself. So I didn't want people to think, well, he's calling it donations and he says it's for the benefit of the site, but how do I know if he's not making lots of money on the side from it? So I did worry about that a little bit, but after after a while, I stopped worrying about it so much. So year to year, I can't carry a few thousand dollars to go to the, to, to the next year. And I don't, I don't worry that somebody might say, well, he's got $5,000 in the bank and that's what he's doing it for. That's really kind of crazy that, that I would be doing it just to have $5,000 in the bank, but I don't worry about that now, but I did worry about it a little bit in the beginning. How did you move from being worried about it to just being like, this is fine? That's a good question. Uh, I don't know that I noticed the transition, uh, but but now when I, with the time that's passed, I'm not getting any pushback. I'm not having people, I don't get the idea that people saying, well, he's really doing this for the money because it's, because the feedback I get is they they do understand that I'm really doing it out of out of a sense of of, uh, of just wanting to give. That's really what it's what the motivation is. So so I don't know there was a, a point at which that happened. I say this is the moment that it, I stopped worrying about it. But uh, but over time I, I became more comfortable with doing that. And I think people can accept it that way because they understand uh, that. Uh, it's a gift to me as well. I mean, to be able to do this work. I mean, just imagine if if your life work is about doing things that benefit other people and as a clinical psychotherapist, that's what I was doing. What could be better than, than doing something you knew benefited other people? So I think people recognize that it's it feeds me as well. You know, any any relationship has to be there has to be be 
something on both sides. It's like when I was doing clinical work, uh, I had some therapists that really thought of themselves as being all knowledgeable and, and they're the ones that had the answers and they give, give, give to their clients and they're doing a good thing. But real therapy, if there's a, as I was taught in my experiences, if there can't be significant change in the client without there being significant change in yourself, it has to go both ways. And when I work with clients, I was always fed by the work I did with the clients. There was benefit to me as well. I learned from my clients and I grew from working with my clients. Yeah. One of the first uh, podcast episodes I did was with a guy called Gregory Boyle. He runs Homeboy mm. Industries. And... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know him? He's, he's a, he is amazing, yes. Tattoos on the Heart is one of his books. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, but you're, what you're saying is reminding me of something that he said in the podcast episode where he said, um, he was talking right at the end of it, he was talking about people getting burnt out by like compassionate work. And he's like, mm -hmm. the problem with that is that, you know, you allow yourself to make it about you. And actually what he says mm -hmm. is like, you don't go there to change the world. You go there to allow the world to change you. And I think that shift yeah. is a bit of a semantic like play on words. But I think that that idea of, decentering yourself from the work is really interesting there is a fine line isn't there between kind of being recognizing that you're being shaped by work and your you know the altruism actually does make people feel genuinely happy mm -hmm. um and also making sure that it isn't about you and i think that's always the tension isn't it that kind of um striving that you do becomes center stage and then that kind of replaces why you're doing it and, and the kind of decentering of yourself Right, because if, if you made it about all about you, it would be it would be a recipe for burnout. Yeah, you know, it's, it's understanding yeah. that it really is a is a, a two way street. Mm. Um, I want to just talk a little bit more. I'm trying to think what else I wanted to ask you actually about the making of the site because it's so amazing. And I think one one thing that I that I think is particularly interesting about it, and I kind of urge everyone to actually check out the website. And we'll link to it on the uh, show notes. But is just how global it is. You know, you have a literal page on the site, which is like live, what's the word? Live visitors to the site. Mm -hmm. And it literally changes. If you sit on the page for a bit, it like changes every couple of minutes and it's everywhere. I was yeah. looking at it the other day and it's like someone in Africa and then there's mm -hmm. someone in Europe and Australia and it's like all across the world. And firstly, a practical question, which is how do you reach these people? Interestingly enough, I did, I did very little. There's a, there's a whole industry search engine, engine optimization, SEO. And, uh, and I didn't really go and, and do the sorts of things that you would do to sort of artificially bump up its, uh, its presence. I was fortunate that about the time I was putting this, this site together, mindfulness was taking off as a concept. You know, everybody wanted to have more of it. And, and there were lots of ways you could you could get some training, but they were expensive. You know, they, they're, they're, there's a cost associated with them. So I was fortunate in the timing that it came in, but the fact that it's free uh, and, and accessible, um, it makes it possible for someone who is in, for instance, in, in, in Malaysia or in the Philippines or in Africa or uh, in, a, in a, a country where the finances aren't as, uh, are, are more difficult. So that people would, uh, who were looking for that kind of thing could find it and it would be helpful and useful to them. So, and I wasn't stupid about how I put it together. I mean, I put it together in a way that would be smart and appropriate for search engines, but I didn't make that the goal to just bump it up. 
and what Google was, says to people who want to make their website pump up, come up to the top, what they say is, don't try to make it, don't try to artificially make that happen. Just have good material. Just have things that are actually useful to people, uh, and 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 people will will find will find it. So, uh, so the, the short answer is, it didn't really do a lot to make that happen. I think I I caught a wave of interest in mindfulness and the fact that it was that it was inexpensive, it was free, and made it accessible. Because I guess you've spoken in the time that you've been running it, you've spoken to lots of different people who've done the course, and we talked a bit about some of them already. Are there any kind of conversations that come to mind where you thought, wow, this really was worth doing? You know, once it started to catch on, and I started, I remember the, the first four or five people that, that actually, uh, I formally graduated from the course. Because in the very beginning, I wasn't even asking people to send me any materials. It started with one person who wrote me and said, I just finished the course. And do I get a certificate as well? I don't have one, but we can make one. So I made up a certificate. And the first few of those I got in, and in order for them to get a certificate, I said, well, you have to show me you've done the practices. Send me a letter that says what you got out of it. And those letters, and if you go to the testimonials and, and uh, the gallery of learning, I call it that page, you'll see, uh, you'll see what people are writing when they do the course. And you can't help but be moved by the kinds of, of, of growth that people have. So when I started getting those, you know, Georgia, there was a point. Uh, up until that point, it was, I put the site out there and I think it'd be used, somewhat useful for people. Uh, but in my mind, it was, it's not as useful as an in-person course. You know, if you have a live instructor and live class, it's got to be better. But when I started getting these letters in, of people who had done the course and how much it had changed their lives. And I thought, holy cow, this, this is as, as life-changing or can be as the in-person course. It was that moment that it was not just, this is something that might be of use to people to something that's really of benefit to other people. And I just feel so grateful that I could be have some part in, in, in doing that. And every time I look at those letters, when it was just a few a month, I could keep up with it all. Because so I always responded personally, looked at the materials, and I would give them some encouragement, some feedback based on what I saw of their practices. And when I got, uh, it got to be too much for me to do by myself, I've got a couple of graduates to help me with that. They'll, they'll write some of those letters back to people. But I read every letter that comes in. And it's good for me to do that. Because I can, when, I, uh, when it's been a while since I've looked at the letters that come in, I can forget. Just there's a mechanical thing to do. I've got to put out these newsletters and keep up the groups going and uh, and keep things running. But when I read the letters, it's this is really making a difference for people, you know, and it inspires me to keep it going and recognizing that it's more than just a a nice thing that people can do to feel better. That for many people, it can be life changing. Yeah, I'm just looking at these letters now they really are amazing like the amount of people that say this has been totally life-changing and a lot of what they're saying you know you've helped me deal with the harder side yeah. of life lots of them here which actually talk about cancer mm -hmm. um comes mm -hmm. up a couple of times and chronic illnesses and it, 
yeah, it's just, it's really amazing. Just reading this one. To say that this class is life-changing is an understatement. I've actually taken it twice. One of the many benefits is a heightened awareness of my often critical inner dialogue, which has helped me decrease my feelings of anxiety tremendously. It's hard to put into words how freeing it is. Um, and then, as I say, there are ones which are slightly more um, specific to their life experience, which is this one's sort of coming to mind, which is it has been three years since I was first diagnosed with stage mm. three rectal cancer and was given this website as a tool for social, emotional and physical support. Since starting, I've been through the eight week MBSR program at least four different times. And the person goes on to say, first time it took me a year and a half to get through. I listened to YouTube videos, um, all while having surgeries and undergoing chemo. Um, second time was after my treatment when I followed my counsellor's eight-week program with a wonderful group of people. And the third was, again, using this website with a friend alongside during the pandemic. Um, thank you for this program from the bottom of my heart. I mean, it must be amazing kind of looking back on these, as you say, and just sort of realising yeah just how much of an impact you can have to people from you know the other side of the world do you ever feel with these kind of um these letters coming in do you ever feel a bit like you wish you could do more to help because I guess as you say the volume of letters mm -hmm. means that you don't even have the time to reply do you ever have that sense or do you feel you know this is the most kind of scalable and impactful way that you can help the most amount of people I feel so fortunate to, to and grateful to, to be uh, able to make any impact, any significant impact. So that and some and and uh, I sometimes get asked how many people who start the course finish, and it's not a high number, you know, percentage-wise. It's and I've I've measured it. It's out of out of the people who begin the course, uh, only one out of five finish the course. So it turns out that's pretty good for an online course. 20 percent is not a bad number but, but people some people will say well what about the other other 80 percent i say well i don't think about the other 80 percent i think about the 20 percent uh, that's 20 percent of a very large number uh, so so this is 20 percent that would not have found something like it because they couldn't afford it or it wasn't available where they are uh, so so it's that that glass half full kind of kind of thing and and i do always think about how I can make it more accessible, you know, so that more people can can take advantage of it. Uh, but it it doesn't come from a sense of, oh, I gotta do more. You know, it's just this is this is a gift to people and I just want to make it more available. And I do measure things. You know, I'm a I'm a mathematician by training in my in my college work and and a, a computer engineer and profession before I started getting the clinical in clinical work, so I do measure things. I know how many people code the website, and when I get more, I say when the, I say that's that's really a good thing. But I but I'm not so driven by that that I miss the tremendous numbers of people that are being benefited uh, even without more expansion. The other theme that I think comes up kind of over and over again is is almost the same revelation that you had, which is quite interesting, which is. I, uh, you know, I went to this really wanting to be like really serene and the, someone says like, why can't I be the next Dalai yeah. Lama? And then actually the big thing that I kind of found was, she says, you know, I got halfway through it and realized that, oh, I'm not going to have a big kind mm -hmm. of revelation. And that was a bit disappointing. But, um, but then I realized that was the whole, that was a revelation itself. That was the point. Yeah. And that, that is a huge realization, a huge learning is to discover it. 
that you don't have to go anywhere to, to, to achieve some great thing spiritually. To have that experience of not having your external circumstances to be a certain way and being not just okay with that, but just feel grateful for that, that's huge. I mean, that's really huge. You go to, so there's some African cultures that, that the people there are not unhappy, although their circumstances are very, are very difficult. Uh, and you say it's not the external circumstances that are causing their happiness. It's the, uh, it's the culture, but it doesn't depend on external circumstances. Uh, and if you have that mindset, then you can, you can be dealing with very, very difficult things like, like cancer or like extreme disabilities or chronic pain and still have a, a life that has joy and has a sense of, of connection and fulfillment. And it's not dependent on, I've got to feel good every single moment, you know? What do you think it is dependent on? So if you take someone who is in, you know, whether it's distress or pain or a life of difficulty, what what do you think that is that kind of allows some people to continue? That's a great question. Maybe part of it is the ability to, to get a bigger picture of things, you know? So... So if you've got if you've got uh, an injury, for instance, um, all your energy goes towards that injury, or you've got an illness, all your energy goes there. And while it's and you need to have some energy there, if you've got a broken arm, you should have it set. If you've got treatable cancer, you should have it treated. But while that's happening, it's important to know that you are bigger than what's than that injury or that disease or that sickness, um, and that. For you to even reflect on how difficult it is means that you're bigger than 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 just that disability. And what John Kabat-Zinn would always says is, is, if you're breathing, that means there's more going right with you than wrong with you. If, and and those of your listeners who understand the, the body, our body has thousands and thousands of, of processes that are going on all the time. They have to be working uh, working correctly for us to even function. Just just to to walk and talk and 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 just to, to breathe in the next breath, and so so if there can be a recognition that you're bigger than the than the disease, there's these thousands of things that are working correctly. You have relationships that are beyond the disease. In some cases, the disease or the the, the difficulty brings out the close relationships that you have and that are valuable to you. You know that's the silver lining of it. So you realize how much people do care, for instance, is to have that bigger picture, you know, that you're more than, than that little difficulty and that you're, that you are uh, bigger than that and includes your family and includes your friends. Uh, and if you can have that sense, it's like when the, the astronauts, I forgot, I think they call it something like a conversion experience. The astronauts go way up uh, in, in, into space and they look back at the earth and they see this, this blue globe sitting in blackness with a very thin atmosphere and also life on this globe, it gives them a way to perspective and just the life that we have in our country and in our state and our town and our home and our family. Uh, we're much bigger than that. Our life includes all of life. You know, your life in England and my life here in the U.S., that life energy is the same life energy that's in every being on the planet. And if there's, if you can have that sense of, I'm really bigger than this problem that I'm having. Uh, and there's a wider perspective 
and that's I think that's that's what people can find. Um, it doesn't mean you ignore it, so you treat whatever you can treat it, uh, but you know you're you know that you're actually bigger than, than that. Yeah, I like that you had one of the meditations in the course where you like thought about. Um, I think it was the one turning toward one, yes. um, mm -hmm. which was it is that one, isn't it? Where you're you think about something that's kind of going wrong for you, or, or if you do have a physical ailment or a physical pain, and then you kind of expand your awareness bit by bit to you know someone in your someone in your friends or your family, and then someone on your street, and then the town, and then the world. And I found that one really powerful actually because it is amazing how kind of insular and like tunnel vision do you get with whatever you're dealing with. Um, but then when you expand it out, you know, just that, that recognition of common humanity, that recognition that distress and, and pain is a natural part of, you know, everyone's lives. I think, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful exercise to do. Yeah. And, and you notice in that exercise, the turning toward exercise, the first part of it is paying attention to what's difficult, paying attention to the pain, what you call the pain, paying attention to what's, emotionally difficult but you don't stay there and get obsessed by it you recognize it for for just how it is and what other components of it are and only then do you start expanding out you know beyond so it's a physical uh, physical difficulty it's finding a place in your body that's that, that's that's not having that difficulty that, that feels that can maybe is more relaxed mm. and you realize you're bigger than that area so that's so really both need to be there because if you ignore if you ignore the, the pain or ignore uh, the injury or the illness that's not going to be helpful you got it needs it needs attention that's what the pain is it says pay attention pay attention pay attention you know if you got an injury you you need to put a band-aid on but it can be within the context of the rest of me is okay and so it's kind of that interesting balance of having here's here's where it's difficult but there's so much that's going going right that's the container in which the difficulty can lie and sometimes the example is you should take a teaspoon of salt and you put it in a cup of water you definitely taste the salt that would be salty take a teaspoon of salt and put it in a lake you wouldn't taste it in the lake it's just spread out among the whole lake the other metaphor on that section of the course uh, that stood out to me was a woman talking about cushions She's talking specifically mm. about chronic pain, and she says the pain is the red cushions, and then and that's yeah. gonna be there, you know, because that's the pain. Yeah. But then every time you obsess over it and you wish it wasn't so, and you worry about what's gonna happen, and you worry about whether it's gonna stay like that forever, that's like these blue pillows that that are actually yeah. optional. Um, and so like, and I like that because it's it's not denying that you know you're in pain or, or that it's a worrying situation, but it's saying. There's actually a whole layer on top of this that that doesn't need to be as painful. Exactly, and that's a that's a great example. Vidyamala Birch just uses that that metaphor of cushions. She actually does a physical of somebody sitting in a chair and say, "That's the pain. That's the first pillow." And then there's, "Oh, I hate this happening. That's another pillow." And when is it going to go away? That's another pillow. How long is this going to last? That's another pillow. And I can't stand that. That's another pillow. And and this isn't happening to other people. Why me? That's another pillow. And all of that is additional to the root difficulty, you know, and understanding those other pillows are, uh, you have a choice about those. You may not have a choice about the what's causing the, the difficulty, but you have a choice about your thoughts and your reactions to it. With Palouse, 
what's next for it do you have like a plan do you want to turn it feels like it would be a great app actually yeah which i wouldn't say lots of people do apps for the sake of doing apps but i actually feel with police because it's chronological or there's some sort of structure to it it would be great. yeah yeah it, it it could be made into an app it turns out it's a lot of work to do that i've looked <laughs> yeah. into it and i've looked right. for easy ways to do it and i don't see an easy way to do it to do it right yeah. it really would be a whole project so i could imagine it becoming an, an app um uh, but uh, in truth my next step is to do myself out of the job so uh so there's going to be 71 uh there's going to come a time if palouse keeps going and it, it's people still find it useful over a period of years there'll be a time when i'm not there anymore you know so um i i had i had a computer business that I, I, when I was ready to leave the computer business that I founded, I didn't, I didn't have a succession plan at all. It was really pretty awful, you know, trying to, to find my way out of my own business. Um, with this, my next step is to, we're now in the last, probably in a few weeks, I'll get a, a notice from the government that says we're a nonprofit organization. And in order to set up that nonprofit organization, you need to have a board, an actual board of people that are they're involved in, in, in advising and running the organization. And and in setting up that board, I'm putting people, I have people on the on there on the board that know about the technology, that that have a grounding in mindfulness. Some of them are mindfulness teachers. So that if the time should come where I get unable to continue, either because I disappear off the face of the planet and I die or or I get disabled somebody else could take it over that's actually my next step my next step is to, to work myself out of a job so that so that if it still has some life it doesn't depend on, on my life which actually most people should do really for most projects because it's kind of well yeah yeah <laughs> i'm just curious how did you learn to be a mindfulness instructor yeah if you go on the on the the, the resources page you'll see one of the options is is training teacher training there's a, a lots of different uh, organizations that that will uh, that are training in in teaching. So you can teach it. They're very expensive and they're time consuming. Do you recommend people to train as teachers? Do you think it is something? You know, you not necessarily. You know, what I usually tell them if someone says, "I love this and I want to be able to teach this," uh, and and if they say the next thing they say is, "Is I'm going to give up my career as an accountant and I'm going to go become." I'm going to become a mindfulness teacher. I say, I say, wait, wait, don't. It's too early to do to to think that way. Most people who who would teach mindfulness are not doing it as their main source of income. You know, they're a physician that does it uh, as an adjunct to their work as a doctor or a nurse, or they're a teacher in grade school who who teaches mindfulness through the work as as a teacher of, of children, or they're uh, or they're a social worker and mindfulness comes into their work, or a psychotherapist and it feeds into their work. So that's the way to, if you want to teach it, teach it within the context of what you're already doing. Uh, even, a, even an accountant could teach mindfulness. I mean, if you're going to be aware of, in order to work with your finances, you've got to be aware of what's going on. That's mindfulness. Uh, so so I, I'd say that's, that you look for a way in which it applies to what you already do. And if you're a teacher, you can do it with your students. You don't need a $15,000 certificate of uh, certification as a teacher, which is 
you add up all the costs that beyond that order, ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Most people don't have that, but people, even with a course as uh, as short as an eight week course, you can learn something that you can share with other people, and it's completely legitimate to share it. Share something that I've learned. You don't bill yourself as a certified mindfulness teacher because you're not, but you have experience. Mind, nobody owns mindfulness. Uh, John, it turns out John Kabat-Zinn, who founded NBSR, Mindfulness-Based Restoration, he anticipated that it was going to become successful and people are going to want, to, want to, to, to claim that as this is the one, this is the best MBSR. And, 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 and he actually trademarked MBSR, not because he could own the trademark and, and hold clamp the, the, the market down. He, he got the trademark so he could open it up so that nobody could say, I am MBSR because he has the trademark, but he makes it available so, so people can teach it within the context of their own profession. That's kind of interesting for kind of what you did. If he hadn't done it that way, whether you think Palouse would have been able to exist or whether you think it would have been a very a different story. Did you speak to him directly when you set it up? Well, actually, no, and that's a, that's a story of its of its own. When I first set it up, I didn't have any uh, any videotapes of myself teaching, which is actually a good thing. It turns out because what what there was available, and partly because of the the sense of generosity that many teachers have, uh, much of their teaching is is uh, is easily is publicly accessible through YouTube and writings that they that they make available. John Capitan is one, and John Shapiro, and and Kristen Neff, and and Tara Brock, all those people that you see on the website. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't ask their permission. I just had the sense that they would be okay with it because they they want to make it more available. So I just trust, and I asked a, a lawyer. I, I said, I said I'm going to be using all these things, and and I'm not. I haven't gotten permission to use them. Do you think I'm going to get in trouble? I said, Well, number one, you're not making any money. And you're not selling their commercial products for anything. You're not, and you're not giving away their commercial products. You're only giving away what they already provide publicly. So, so the worst thing that would happen is that they would they would write to you and say, say, you know, I really rather you didn't put my material up there. I want to promote it myself. And then you take it down. And that would be the end of it. So in the beginning, I didn't. Uh, but but over time, it became important that I that I at least would be able to tell people that. That what I'm using on the site is with their permission. And the first time I had, I realized how important that was was somebody who had taken the course, who lived in Spain, and John Capitan came to speak in Madrid. Uh, and she asked him, he said, Well, what do you think about this free MBSR course? He goes, uh, I don't know anything about it. And she got nervous and says, He doesn't know anything about it and using his material. Is that okay? And I said, Well, I think it would be okay with him, but I, I have to say, I haven't asked him. So at that point, I started sending out feelers, and John Kempis is a hard person to get a hold of. Uh, but finally, he did write back, and he says, I look at the website. I like what you're doing. I support it. Um, so totally have my permission to use my materials that way. I've done that with him, with Tara Brock, with Christian Neff, with China Shapiro. All the main people have given me permission. So now I can say, yes, they know about it, and yes, they're happy with how I have used that. But in the very beginning, I just kind of put it out there and figured if they complain, I'll stop using it. 
but hopefully they won't complain. And so far, without exception, everybody I've contacted who's written back has said, not only is it okay, I love that you're doing that. I love that you're making it for free. Even people have commercial products. You know, they make money from selling their own trainings and things. They say, this is benefiting the world, and I'm for that. I'm happy you're doing that for free. Gosh, sorry, if you can hear that, it's thunder coming. <laughs> the oh, weather huh. is changing. Yeah, it's like there's actually a rainbow. It's so dry here in this part of the U.S. Yeah, it was funny because last time we spoke, which was less than a week ago, I think, I was like sweating with heat in London. Oh, now. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it's crazy, yeah. There's a huge rainbow, actually, I'm looking at right now. Wow. So. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about which I haven't asked you? I don't think so. We covered a lot of ground, and the, and I've, I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. So, And the only thing I would say is, is relative to that, your question about what can you do to maintain the practice, mm. uh, is, is what a, to reinforce what I had said, is just start small. Don't don't make yourself meditate for half an hour or 45 minutes, whatever you think is the ideal amount to meditate. Just a little bit, just five minutes. Just commit to do just a little bit a day and really give yourself permission to not finish. And the same thing would be true of starting a new career. It would be don't try to do it all at once. Just take what's in front of you and say, and if you know it's going to take 10 hours to do the right amount of work on it, don't say you're going to do 10 hours. Just say, I'm going to spend just a minute or two with this just to, just to sort of get started and what likely will happen is you'll it'll you'll willingly spend more time on it and even if not you've planted a seed even if it's only for a minute or two that's going to percolate and grow from there thank you so much for speaking i really really enjoyed it i feel like we've gone on lots of different tangents so appreciate your patience and, and i've just in, enjoyed talking with you so much and enjoyed uh, the kind of inquisitiveness that you brought to it and intelligence you brought to the questions. So it made it really a joy to, to talk and revisit some of these things. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review or subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow Out of Hours on Instagram or on Substack just by clicking the link in this episode. And if you're interested in checking out Palouse Mindfulness, go to the link in this episode or search Palouse Mindfulness. It's an eight-week course and it's really worth doing, especially if you're feeling stressed out or if you just feel like exploring some concepts that we explored in this episode a little more deeply. 